Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm Steve Hayes. We have two guests on today's episode. First, we will talk with Senator Ben Sass, Republican from Nebraska, about Ukraine and uh, this American political moment, Joe Biden's State of the Union address, and more. And then we'll talk with Barbara Comstock, who represented Northern Virginia in the U.S. Congress from 2015 to 2019 the 10th Congressional District. Uh, Ms. Comstock also serves as an advisor to Adam Kinziger's Country First PAC. We'll have a discussion with her about the State of the Union as well uh, and the fighting inside the Republican Party and what comes next. And before we jump in, we had some audio issues at the end of my interview with Ben Sass. Uh, we've decided to include them despite some of the challenges because we think the discussion was worth fighting through. Senator Sass, welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. Thanks for the invite. Good to see you, hear you, Steve. Of course, of course. Uh, I want to start with the State of the Union last night and a line from President Biden that really jumped out at me when he said it. And I'll just read it briefly. He said, throughout our history, we've learned this lesson. When dictators do not pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos. They keep moving and the costs and the threats to America and the world keep rising. Have we, in fact, learned our lesson? You know, Steve, I am trying real hard the last eight days to stay as far from anything that can sound partisan as possible, because I think this needs to be a national moment where we all try to move together. But the State of the Union was just weird. Um, it, it seemed to be plucked out of, I don't know, the Internet, people tuning into a war, but with no sense of history and no sense of the future. And I don't just mean like, you know, Vladimir Putin history that he's pissed, not just to get about pre-1989 and 1991, or desirous of going back to a pre-1989, 1991 world, or, you know, go all the way back to a, what he's mad at Leninists about because they didn't maintain a Russian empire. I don't mean like distant history. I mean the history of the last seven years. There was no yeah. sort of 2014 and no consequences to the present moment. And it doesn't also feel like there's any history future that starts a month from now when things are uglier than the euphoria of some of the places where the Ukrainian military has overperformed to date. So, no, I don't think we've learned that history, and I don't think it was clear what President Biden's view is of what we should do next and how you have to bring the American people along to why this matters. I think this matter, moment matters a lot. And, and President Biden didn't speak like a guy who's trying to lead 330 million people toward a common cause of uh, action and understanding of the coming weeks and months. Yeah. How do you think about public criticism of the administration in a moment like this? This is actually a question that I was going to ask you before you said what you just said. I mean, on the one hand, there are things that they're doing that seem to indicate less urgency than the situation requires. I would say uh, less serious reflection of of history, um, picking and choosing history, as, as you just said. And in that sense, public pressure can be helpful. On the other hand, it is important to present Vladimir Putin with the united front to the extent that that's possible. How do you, how do you think about that as you think about what you're saying? Yeah. So um, the bad guy in this case, Vladimir Putin, wants Americans to be divided. Um, like Chairman Xi, he thinks that one of the, he thinks one of the giant downsides of democratic, Republican, uh, market-oriented systems of government is that people can have different views and they can argue about them in public. He thinks that weakens people. And they're in general wrong about that. But it is the case that we have a, a, a bad virus of tribalism in our time. And if people start to decide, people in a domestic political audience, start to decide how they think about the completely unjustified, unwarranted, illegal, immoral, um, Putinite Russian invasion of Ukraine based on who in American politics has said something that they do or don't agree with because they do or don't agree with those people's partisanship. That is bad, and that does weaken us. So I want to do everything we can to talk about what America ought to be doing in um, and not just what is the, you know, loyal opposition political party that's out of power 
say about an administration that often does lack urgency in my mind. There's so many things that this administration's national security team did wrong last April to August in the Afghanistan debacle. Um, I don't want to talk about any of those things. I don't want to bring up any of those things. Um, I want to just figure out in this moment, praise where I can and push good policy where I can in private and only push publicly when I think it's urgent and necessary because it's not working in private. And again, I don't want to linger on this, but one of the problems we have with this administration is they seem to not recognize that they were elected, um, that President Biden was elected because they promised to be sane and moderate and not addicted to frenzies of Twitter. And yet pretty much all they've done since Ron Klain became the junior president of the United States, a job that's way, way over his head, um, all they've done is live in Twitter chambers about what the farthest left always online, really angry, two to eight percent of Americans want. And you see that played out in their administration's prioritization over and over and over again. And so I think it's why they don't have any coherent view of a national security strategy, because they mostly want to talk about far left domestic politics, and they just hope national security won't get in their way. Well, last night for a State of the Union, there was no chance that the president could ignore the fact that we're seeing heroes be birthed right before our eyes in the Ukraine, freedom fighters that Americans instinctively um, identify with and understand people who would take great risk to fight for their freedoms. And so the president and his team realized they had to pivot and they had to talk about it. But all they really did was just lop on 12 minutes of a Ukrainian rah-rah story at the beginning, and then they went from there right back to a domestic political agenda, which is the typical laundry list of the State of the Union. And those 12 minutes didn't have a coherence about sort of uh, stealing the American people for what's going to come next when you have lots more images of civilian populations being shelled, and when you see, um, you know, dying babies and moms and grandmas on images, which is nearly inevitable. They didn't tell the American people, here's what's coming next, and here's what we're going to do in response to what comes next. So I'm, I'm mostly still just pushing in private um, for there to be um, more clarity about the plan, about how we need to arm the Ukrainians to the teeth uh, with intelligence and with munitions. But we also have to have a lot of sobriety about the fact that though the military has radically, the Ukrainian military has radically overperformed to date, at some point it's highly probable that what we're going to be doing is trying to arm an insurgency, not a military. And at that moment, it's, everything's going to get so much harder. We will look back and say, did we do every conceivable thing we could do when we could still partner with an army that had pretty open resupply lines from the West? And right now, the administration just isn't very serious about that. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's one of the things that really stands out. I mean, every, every time I, I read a report or I, I talk to somebody about what's taking place now, I'm encouraged and heartened by the ways in which our European allies are, are stepping up, the, the, the arms that they're supplying, um, the, what the, the Biden administration is, is doing and announcing on a day-to-day basis. But you look back and say... The administration publicly released so much intelligence about what the Russians were planning to do. I think it. I think that that was clever. I think it actually was pretty effective. But it does raise the question: If we knew a lot of what we knew then, why weren't we doing the things we're doing today a month ago, three weeks ago? And and that's a that's a big challenge. Uh, well, let me ask you one one uh, question about someplace you have been pushing publicly, and and that is for the U.S. government to provide better real-time battlefield intelligence to the Ukrainians. The mere fact that you're saying we need to do this and we need to do more of it and we need to do it better suggests you believe we're not doing enough now. Why do you believe that? And I understand you're on the Intelligence Committee and there are things you can't say, but to the extent that you can give our our listeners uh, an understanding, why is that not happening? Yeah, so you're, you're right uh, that the, your qualifier there is a big deal because most of what I know I can't, can't talk about, but I think it's worth distinguishing between the three lanes of sanctions, as you were, um, military uh, support and supplies, material, um, and intel. And on, it, it, I'll, I'll get to intel third, but at, at the level of sanctions, 
there's a lot of stuff that we should have done earlier and we didn't. But now that we did, it has been good that they were able to bring along Europe. I mean, to a certain degree, um, parts of Eastern Europe have led us. And obviously, the hero in this story is Zelensky, um, who's led freedom fighters in an unbelievably courageous public stand. And that Zelensky is the guy who changed Switzerland. Zelensky is the guy who changed Germany, who changed Sweden, Finland, etc. Um, but I give the administration some credit for the way they've done the sanctions work post-invasion, but we should have done it pre. And at the same level, at a military resupply level, um, three administrations in a row, three administrations in a row have done a crappy job of arming the Ukrainians adequately when 2014 happened. And 2014 wasn't just the annexation of Crimea, it was also shooting down a civilian airliner, and it was the the predicate of uh, Putin believing when the West says something, we don't mean it, so he could bomb civilian populations in Syria for years and years and years after that. So at a material level, we've always been late as well. And so at an intelligence level, the story is very similar. In that we, it, it is true, the administration will tell you if you're interviewing them right now, that we are getting the Ukrainians' intelligence. That's true. My objection is that we are not getting the Ukrainians enough intelligence, and we are not getting them lethal targeting intelligence. That's my core problem. That The NSC has danced around this issue repeatedly and hides behind words about, um, you know, policy versus uh, lawyerly sign-off and which agency and was it the NSC or was out at one of the cabinet-level agencies. And they, they do all this bureaucratic shuffling, but the direct, simple question that they don't answer because they're not being asked it enough by uh, the journalistic community is, have you, Mr. President, directed the active sharing of real-time lethal targeting intelligence with the Ukrainians? Have you directed your administration to expedite all the real-time lethal targeting intelligence you can? And I want to be clear, there are behind the scenes some really important intellectual debates that matter. There are, there are debates about things that could expose sources methods. We shouldn't do any of that. There are important questions about um, targeting information that's about a particular known individual as opposed to a military convoy that has a bunch of commanders in it. But the truth of the matter is, Nebraskans who call me over the last 48 hours watching TV or following the war uh, on the internet, and they see a 40-mile convoy, they say, wait a minute, I don't understand why more of this convoy isn't blown up. Why are the invaders not being killed? Are they short of intelligence? Are they short of material? Can they not get to the air? Well, the good news is the Ukrainian Air Force didn't collapse in anything like the manner almost every analyst thought they would. And so there are lots of opportunities to target some of these invader forces. And um, Nebraskans asked me a bunch of questions about why that why, why the kill rate of the good guys isn't high. And underneath that, there are a bunch of things that the administration should have a lot more urgency about. And and right now, they, there's a lack of urgency. Yeah, I've gotten that question so many times from our members and from uh, from friends as well about that, that convoy in particular. Last question, if I can. President Biden insisted last night that the state of our union is strong. And when I heard those words, they surprised me. Then I watched uh, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds giving the Republican response. And she said the same thing. She also said the state of our union is strong. I can come up with a lot of ways to describe the current state of our union and strong would be low on the list. I wonder if you think the state of our union is strong. I think Americans are strong. And I think we are blessed with an amazing heritage that our uh, Creole documents affirm true things about universal human dignity. And, you know, over the course of the 200 years since the miracle at Philadelphia, you've seen more and more people across the world. And this is some of what Putin's upset about, frankly, when he talks about history from 105 or 120 years ago, he's pissed that Philadelphia ideas spread off the globe. Um, and so when we have a heritage of explaining that everybody is created in the image of God and government isn't the author or source of our rights, it's just a shared project, just a secular tool to secure rights that God gives us via nature, that's pretty great. That's pretty strong. And I think in the long term, a decentralized 
market-oriented, democratic capitalist republic like ours beats any centralized system. This is the, this is the best form of government. But this best form of government only beats a system of centralization if we have a shared understanding of that heritage. And we can go through lots and lots of examples of where our union um, is fragile and imperiled because we haven't done civics for half a century. Um, and we got a whole bunch of people who would rip us apart uh, for, for clickbait, for identity politics, for division, for the sake of not just money, but um, their own small performative relevance. We got jackasses everywhere in this building who respond to the incentives of politics to, to sort of live out the old adage that Washington is just Hollywood for ugly people. And there are a bunch of people here who really want attention and they want a grandstand. And there's not a lot of adult leadership in our government for uh, a number of years in a row. But the core point that you start with, and I, I didn't hear Kim's response, um, but that both she and the president if they want to get to a way that you say the state of our union is strong, the true way to do that is to say humans are strong, humans have great dignity, and America has the best tradition ever of affirming that. We just need to get back to a restoration of that understanding of America and embrace uh, you know, a digital revolution and hybrid future. It would be pretty damn cool if we could make synthetic biology and, and uh, the supercomputers that all of us walk around in our pockets as tools that um, support and augment human dignity as opposed to fracture. Senator Ben Sass, thank you for your time at what I know is a, a very busy day, very busy days uh, these days. Thanks for your time. Thanks, man. Hey, we'll take a quick break to hear from Tax Network USA. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best possible deal. Whether you owe 10000 dollars or 10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you are on a fixed income, they can help financially resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash dispatch. Barbara Comstock, welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. Great to be with you. I want to start by asking you a question that I asked Senator Sass. And it's one of the things from the State of the Union and the Republican response last night that sort of caught me off guard. Um, President Biden, as he was wrapping up his speech, uh, declared that the State of the Union was strong. And then in, in her uh, re Republican response, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds also said the State of the Union is strong. Now, I've got a lot of descriptors for the State of the Union, tired, frustrated, polarized, tattered. I could go on and on and on. Strong would be about 500 descriptors down my list. Am I just too pessimistic or do they have a point? Well, I think uh, President Biden followed that with because the American people are strong. And so I think that is very much sort of in the spirit of what we're seeing abroad with you know, the voices of for, for freedom, for democracy, joining with Zelensky, you know, Germany turning on a dime, Switzerland, everybody coming together. And I, I, I wish President Biden had done a better job of connecting those two. But I do feel there is a strength in the country there that's still untapped, a maybe silent majority strength that wants to see this division and this ugliness and this you know, disinformation campaigns and all the nonsense from the 2020 campaign and the tragedy from January 6th, I think there is a reservoir of strength there that is rising up. And the more we voice that, uh, the stronger we will be. So I think it's there to be tapped. And that's why, you know, when leaders like I'm a fan of Senator Sass and I know he's been out, you know, very aggressive on um, first voting for impeachment for against you know 
President Trump, but also very supportive of President Zelensky. While also, you know, offering the usual criticism and disagreements that we as Republicans have with a lot of Joe Biden's agenda. Yeah, we talked, it was interesting, we talked a little bit about that because it was clear he was reluctant to criticize the president um, in in terms that were too strong because it's so important to present a, a united front as, as Vladimir Putin is yeah. looking back here. On the other hand, there are, I think, some some things that are not happening in our response to what's taking place in Ukraine that where time is of the essence, these things are urgent. And if they don't happen now, you know, it may be too late when we try to happen. And it was interesting to talk to him about how he sort of straddles that or, 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 um, or addresses, you know, public criticism uh, at the administration without going too far. Let me ask you a question about, about that untapped, um, that untapped middle or that untapped um, majority. David French has written quite a bit about that um, for the dispatch. And I believe he's right. I believe you're right. Um, you're, you're a one-time elected official, represented Northern Virginia from 2015 to 2019 in the U.S. Congress. Um, how do you a- awaken that? Because the people who are most passionate about politics, the people who are loudest about politics, are typically people on the fringes. So you've got this very voluble set of Republicans that are the sort of the Trumpiest Republicans, and they're the outrage Republicans egged on by the, you know, infotainment complex on the on the right. And on the left, you've got the squad and the the online netroots left wing. And because they're so passionate about politics, because they uh, they they're willing to put in the hours, they have a disproportionate influence on our debate. How do you get that the people who haven't thus far been fired up to, to, to take on that challenge? Well, I actually think those people, you're right, they are the loudest, but they're also kind of lazy. They aren't good at putting together coalitions and getting things done. And it's the people who you often don't see on TV and out there who are, you know, putting together, you know, an infrastructure package, or they're putting together a bill to um, you know, deal with opioids. You know, somebody like Fred Upton, who for years has been a great advocate on NIH cancer research and does all that work. You know, he's getting abused because he, you know, because he voted for impeachment. But this is a serious legislator who year after year is always at the top of the heap in terms of um, getting things done for his constituents and for the country. So I do think people recognize that. And I think as you as we move through these primaries, I think people, you know, I mean, look, yesterday you had Texas and Ken Paxton, who got the endorsement of Donald Trump, who has a lot of, you know, he's under indictment for one thing, but he's, um, you know, one of these performance artists. He um, didn't, you know, as an incumbent, the other incumbents, you know, were 20 points ahead of him and he'll have a runoff now. Hopefully he won't uh, win. Some of the other people that Trump has endorsed Um, are kind of flailing. And so I always, you know, I encourage those people to get out there. Yes, it's harder uh, to win a primary when you're a principled conservative and focused on issues and and doing the hard work, but you should do that anyway. You know, it's like we tell our kids, you know, yeah, you you may have to work harder than somebody else, but it's not going to kill you. Right, right. Never killed anybody. And, and so I do think, um, you know, when you would, like when I would go out and knock on doors, it wasn't those loud voices that you heard. It was those people door after door as you talked to them that would give you that sense of where people were at. And I mean, I my first race was during the Tea Party, and you had these people who'd run down to Washington to go to Tea Party events, and they'd drive me crazy. I'd say the way we're going to win elections is knocking on doors and talking to people and hearing about what their concerns were, and they they're what they usually are. It's you know, their kids' future, the economy, you know, on the state level, it's bridges and roads and, and things like that and crime. And so when you cover those basic issues, um, you are rewarded. But that's not what's necessarily rewarded on um, TV. But, you know, when you look at the people who are on, t- you know, Marjorie Green will never pass a bill. And I certainly hope she will lose her primary. I'm working uh, to help her 
primary opponent, Jennifer Strahan, and I do think she has a path to win. She's probably more, I'm pretty sure she's more conservative than I am, but I think she fits the district both in tone and seriousness as a small business person, as well as being, you know, the kind of conservative that you and I always traditionally thought of as uh, within the norm. Marjorie Taylor Greene has raised more money, I think, than anybody other than Kevin McCarthy and maybe Liz Cheney. She is she is sort of um, perfected this politics as performance more than anything else. She she tried to pull a stunt last night at the State of the Union where she caused a ruckus and interrupted the president. Um, she's not punished for it. She went to this, this, uh, you know, basically white nationalist conference opposite CPAC last weekend, gave a speech, uh, gave a speech, uh, as the host of the event helped to lead cheers pro Vladimir Putin cheers, um, sort of shrugged off the Holocaust as he's done many times in the past. Um, Kevin McCarthy came out and said that's unacceptable. But when he was asked questions about it by our reporters, by dispatch reporters yesterday, he seemed frustrated that he was being asked again because he said it was unacceptable. If she's not punished and if she's given these platforms by talk radio, by cable, what have you, why should we believe that she's not ascendant, that that actually is the future of the Republican Party? Well, I think that's why it's important to beat her in the primary. I mean, you did have Herschel Walker, who was going to appeal with her, um, now said, you know, Herschel Walker, an African-American man, decided he didn't want to appear with someone who appeared at a racist event. <laughs> Good for him. I mean, I don't think he's the best candidate um, himself either. But when you have somebody who's been, I mean, he's been endorsed by Trump, yet he is now walking away from her. He also has refused to engage on the governor's race in Georgia, and he has not endorsed Purdue, who I think is going to lose. I think Brian Kemp is going to do pretty well there. And I think a lot of people resent, you know, and Purdue lost and lost for reasons, you know, mostly Trump. In fact, when I think he was, um, I can't remember exactly when it was, but he was at a senatorial event that I was at last year, and he said something to the effect of, hey, we all know why we lost. This was Senator Perdue saying, yeah, <laughs> blaming Trump for his loss, which is uh, certainly what every most people think, and saying we have to move on. Yet then he turns around very opportunistically. And I think people see that. So I think we've got to trust that voters, American people, when you appeal to them honestly, that they see that. And even if you, they don't, then, you know, you, you've done the right thing. I mean, I know in six, you know, I couldn't spend all my time fighting Trump when I was in because I actually was passing bills. I'm happy to say I was named one of the top 10 Republican legislators when, when I was in for passing a lot of um, bills, including a sexual harassment bill that, haha, Donald Trump had to sign <laughs> because we had a veto-proof majority on it. So, you know, that's how you, you know, work together and get coalitions and get something passed that, you know, even if he doesn't want to sign it, I, I don't know that he didn't want to, but he signed it privately. Uh, but, um, you know, we have those opportunities now to, uh, because Trump has done such bad vetting of his candidates. You know, in North Carolina, I don't think his handpicked person for Senate will win. You know, you're going to have Purdue lose. He's already back, already scared to endorse anyone in Ohio and is talking about, maybe I'll endorse a bunch of them because he wants to claim credit for whoever wins. So I think he is becoming less of a power. And I think when you see people, they realize, well, maybe I'd like somebody else. Now, interestingly, you know, the name you hear most often is DeSantis. And, you know, he came in second at CPAC. Well, um, that's probably the worst place to be is second place to Donald Trump because you are now going to become the target, which DeSantis already <laughs> has, of the Steve Bannons, of the Trump grifters, of the people who want to make money off of Trump running again. And if there's another viable alternative that they think mainstream center-right America might support, then they are going to do them in. I don't think DeSantis is going to be that person. Um, I think it will be some yet unnamed mystery date who can put together a coalition of not 
just, you know, regular Republicans, but anti-Trump, as well as, frankly, pro-Trump, because you got to have the base, but do it in a way that turns you a few clicks away from the toxic ugliness of Trump and maybe turns it towards what I think has been uplifting everybody on the international front with somebody like Zelensky, who is just, you know, in, in a, you know, just in a weekend has inspired millions across the globe to say, we can have a good guy and we can win. Yeah. You, um, you participated in uh, a conference over the weekend sponsored by uh, Principles First, uh, an organization of mostly Republicans and or former Republicans that is opposed to Trump. Um, they've been described as as never Trumpers, um, run by Heath Mayo, who I think has done some really interesting and important work in in sort of inside the Republican coalition. And y- you participated in a panel discussion sort of about Republicans and Trump. And um, Joe Walsh, who's a, also a former member of Congress, former talk radio or talk radio uh, personality, said, if Trump runs again in 2024, the nomination is his. We all know that. And no one will challenge him. Sounds like you don't think that's correct. I don't. And I think, you know, one man or one woman with courage can make a majority. You know, I think we're seeing that on the international stage now. And I've always sort of believed in that. And, um, you know, will still hitch my wagon to that concept because I, I do think, you know, de Tocqueville got it right. You know, the American, you know, America is great because they are good. And we can, you know, now we have to actively, you know, address the disinformation campaign that that Trump and his acolytes, hopefully people like Bannon will go to jail when there's a trial for his uh, refusal to uh, work with the January 6th committee. And so he won't be around to do his disinformation campaigns, but it's upon us to show why it's all wrong. You've had, you know, you know, Bill Barr, who was certainly revered, not just by conservatives, but by the Trump conservatives, has now come out, you know, as he did at the time, but now in more detail, saying that, no, he lost the election. And I think when you scratch the surface, most of these people, they'll say, but Biden, but Biden, he's terrible. It's like, well, that's not going to be your choice in 2024. I don't think Biden's going to be on the Democrat ticket, nor will Vice President Harris. And I don't think, uh, you know, if Republicans choose to put Trump on the ticket, I think he will lose again because he got 47 percent. He at least lost some of that in January 6th. There's no demographic where you can look and say Trump is gaining. (laughs) You know, his vote is older. It shrunk from January 6th. I think this Putin, you know, I mean, he said, I have no message for Putin. He was asked, what's your message to Putin? I have no message. Well, you know what? conservatives and American people across the board are saying, we have a very strong message. You know, we stand with Ukraine. We stand with Zelensky. We're standing with those moms who are giving birth in the bomb shelters. We're standing um, with these citizens, what Miss Ukraine, who's taking up, you know, arms and out there to protect her country. That's who the American people and most Republicans stand with. And all they need to do is have an alternative that is sane and a nice guy. And I do remind people, I don't think I did on that panel, but in Virginia, now I know some, uh, you know, I, I've known Glenn Youngkin for a while, and I know he is a good and decent person, even if I disagree with him on some of the issues of the campaign. And I did support him. And one of the interesting things, because he just, it, he and his wife and his family, just good, decent people friends with Paul Ryan, you know, he just is a good guy, self-made, very philanthropic. He did, had higher percentages in the red, red Southwest Virginia coal mining areas than Trump did. Now, he still didn't win, say, Loudoun County or up in these suburbs where, that I used to represent because they're still skeptical, but he was able to cobble together and turn around by 12 points, really just by being a good guy. You know, his, and I, I tell people, you can have tax cuts, a strong defense, low regulation, um, innovation, Republican policies that we all care about without having a jerk. And so, you know, when people say to me, but 
Trump would have been better than Biden. I said, that's over. Now it's, hey, wouldn't it be a lot easier to win and have a strong majority with a good guy? Or I'd love to see a good woman (laughs) get in there and do that. Somebody who can take, I mean, I think, I mean, have confidence in the conservative principles. I think you can put together a center-right coalition and independent that gets you into the 55, 60% area. I mean, in 2014, I won by 56% in Northern Virginia with, um, you know, with that kind of message, as did Governor McDonnell. I mean, it was back in 2009. And I think that's the coalition that Glenn is rebuilding and working to. It's a coalition that Chris Sununu in New Hampshire has built because he uh, won by double digits in New Hampshire, a state that Trump lost. So there is a path. So when I ask people, okay, I get you voted for him. I'm not, you know, anyone who voted for him in 20, I'm not picking on them. I'm not, I understand why you did it. But after January 6th, after now, after Putin, you just have to realize he can't win. So are you just going to keep doubling down on somebody who lost the House, the Senate, the Georgia seats, the White House, never got the popular vote when there's somebody else? And that person by virtue of not asking Donald Trump for permission to run, will demonstrate that they're a leader. The guys who are saying, oh, I'm not going to run if he runs, you've just told me you're not a leader, you're not qualified to be president, and I won't be supporting you. Nor will a lot of other people, because they don't want a mini-me. I mean, Jeff Rowe, who did Youngkin's campaign, and was a Ted Cruz guy, Anna DeSantis, he himself has said the people trying to be mini-me Trump's aren't going, aren't effective because a leader, you know, you're a follower, you're a sycophant, you're not a leader. And at the end of the day, even the people who like Trump want somebody who's their own woman or their own man. Yeah. I'm I'm pretty confident that if, if Trump, I, I think it's far from certain that Trump will run in 2024, but if he does decide to run again, I am confident that there will be several, um, alternative Republicans who run for the nomination and don't really care, including some, some folks who might surprise people who have been pretty closely identified with, with Donald Trump and his movement. Let me, let me just go back to, to something you said, because it, it, we've, we've talked about it on this podcast a number of times, and it's a hard thing. It's sometimes a hard thing to convey because as a reporter, somebody who's covered members of Congress, um, top Republicans throughout this whole, you know, going back to 2015 it's hard to communicate to people this bigger truth about how elected Republicans feel about Donald Trump, because they will say in an off the record conversation with me, I can't believe this guy. This is terrible. Do you believe he said this nightmare for the Republican Party, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes literally within a minute, be standing in front of microphones, praising Trump and praising. And it's it's. You know, on the one hand, it would be it's it's tempting to just blow all my sources and say, well, OK, here's the list of people who have said this. But I can't do that. I make a I make a promise to keep their the, the conversations off the record and I keep keep those promises. But it's harder to convey that that bigger truth. And I think it, it contributes to this sort of collective sense that Republicans are uniformly behind the president when many Republicans, most Republicans are not. This is true of elected Republicans. It certainly was true of, you know, my former colleagues at Fox News, some of whom would would say, I can't believe I had to defend that guy. And I would th- say, I'm not sure you did have to defend defend that. Yeah, and January 6th is going to have a lot of uh, probably the committee will probably have a lot more of those uh texts and emails we've already seen. Un- undoubtedly, including I believe some of some of mine. Um, to, to, to folks as I was trying to do some reporting on that. Um, what was it like as a member of Congress in those early days? Because, you know, I've, I've heard from other members of Congress. I've talked to other members of, of Congress about this who said, look, I am not going to stop and talk to reporters every time Donald Trump says something silly. You couldn't because even keep I would up do with nothing the else. Yeah, exactly, right. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and we wrote when I was uh, helping to run the Weekly Standard, we wrote a, a very very critical. This is in early 2017 
uh, editorial, long editorial critical of Trump's Republican enablers. It said, you've got to speak out about this stuff. You can't afford to sit back and not say anything. And I got a, 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 I got a, a response from a member of Congress, lengthy response, angry response, who said, look, I am doing my committee work all day, every day. I'm doing the kinds of things that my constituents sent me to do. I am helping to increase defense spending because it's something I ran on. I am helping to you know, cut government spending because it's something that I, that I emphasized in my own campaigns. And you know, your argument about the Republican neighbors, enablers looks past all of that. How did you handle that as a member of Congress? Yeah, well, it, you know, I I certainly can relate to what uh, the person you're talking about said, and that probably is is very common. You know, I when Trump was elected, I had I had not endorsed him um, and said I didn't know if I would, and then the Access Hollywood tape came out, and um, I actually was hosting my son's rehearsal dinner that night. <laughs> I didn't know it had come out. I came out, heard the story just fired off the response and went back to the party and said, I'm out, you know? So I expected that would be what a lot of people said. I mean, that was where I was. And at that point I just said, well, this is what I, you know, okay, I'll lose. He loses, whatever. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sticking with it. So yes, I was surprised when um, there were not many other people who joined me uh, that evening um, really didn't find that out until the wedding was out, you know, the next day I was busy with the wedding and all. But then when he came in and was elected, that was also a shocker that was like, oh, gee, I survived and darn it, he did too. <laughs> so that was, but I think that, you know, Adam Kinzinger has said this. He said, you know, uh, he, he likes that scene from the band of brothers where he's dressing down this guy who wasn't doing his job and he has something to the effect of, you got to understand you're already dead. And once you understand you're dead, you can do your job. And that's kind of how I felt in that campaign. Okay, okay, I'm a dead person. I'm just this is where I am. I'm gonna do it. And then actually, the next three weeks of the campaign were pretty easy. People were yelling at me, but I was like, "Listen, you know, Hillary's gonna be president, and I've got to fight back against her bad policies." Then, to my shock, Trump was in there. Then, when he was in there, and I will burn some sources because I was part of the Tuesday group, which is the moderate group. You know, you had people like. Elise Stefanik, who actually was heading up the, you know, she was always going for whatever leadership role she could find and everything. And it was not the Trump camp. And she certainly would roll her eyes. And, you know, one of the first things as, as freshmen, even before Trump, we were Ken Buck, who was one of the, you know, Trumpy kind of uh, folks. We were, when he was our class president and voted against uh, Paul Ryan, she was part of the cabal that was. We were thinking of let's get rid of Ken. So no, she was very much in a different camp, and like she's not even recognizable anyway. So that's one group. But the people who are trying, particularly those in some pretty conservative districts who are trying to get their work done, I get. You know, you couldn't possibly keep up with all the stupid things Trump said, and but that's where I think leadership. You know. And I certainly think Paul Ryan did this more in the vein of Mitch McConnell and what he's doing. And I do make a distinction of how Paul handled it and 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 Mitch McConnell and many senators still handle it. And of course, Liz and Adam versus how House leadership handles it now. I think there's a big difference there. And when the leadership doesn't kind of like, hey, that's what you're there for. You have to expend the you got to cover your team. And when they don't do it, it does make it harder for everybody. And then everybody just kind of crouches and, and does what they're doing. And they're but, sending the opposite signal right now. I mean, they've gone after Liz Cheney. Exactly. They've gone after Adam Kinziger. But people resent that they're, that um, Marjorie Greene's being protected, that they have to deal with Gosars and people like that. And there is a side, there still is, I think that first vote for Liz that was two thirds of the caucus, I think that's the caucus that's had it with Trump and is kind of disgusted. And I have said many times, you know, if, if he disappeared, these electeds would not be in the search party. Most of them would not be looking for him and they would be happy to see him disappear. So, and, and actually one of the ways they should do it, I think, is pass a bill 
that says you have to turn over your taxes and turn over all these documents um, related to all of his business arrangements that he's had going on now. And then you'd probably never see him either because he's been fighting that in court all along. So if he said a requirement, that's also why he probably will wait on in terms of announcing if he's going to run. I kind of agree with Jonathan Carl that I don't think he will. I think this is all mostly about making money in the grift right now and trying to be the kingmaker. But the, the members who were, you know, it, it is a struggle every day because like I had, when I had to deal with it, like, you know, I was always fighting, please don't shut down the government. Those are my constituents. I support, you know, defense spending and things like that. So you have to have a relationship that someone's going to sign your bills, you know? So if you're out every day calling them names, disagreeing with everything, I mean, the first week or so he's in, I'm, I was at a mosque denouncing what he had done on the um, immigrant, you know, on the Muslim ban. And I didn't go out to the airport. I wasn't doing the performance art. I was with my Muslim community saying, I'm standing with you. Let me know. We did a lot of casework on that. So I tried to, you know, Charlottesville, the same thing. You know, a lot of us made statements, but it was never enough for those who were attacked, you know, because now Trump was my fault. I was like, I didn't support the guy. I didn't right. vote for him. Right. I tried right. to get others elected. But then you have to go to work. You know, I mean, when I was in this General Assembly in Virginia and Terry McAuliffe was the governor, I had subpoenaed Terry back in the Clinton days. <laughs> you know, we were always on the opposite side of everything. But then he was someone I wanted to sign my bills, which he did. So you have there's a difference when he's elected. But that's why I draw the line at January 6th, actually at November 20, because he lost it's over. You don't have to have a working relationship or somehow, how am I going to do right by my constituents and still get things done? He lost. You got to move on. And that's where the fear of what Trump created and then January 6th, not making the dividing line there. That's where I really think it's the problem. I understand before that. Listen, Adam and Liz voted for Trump. You know, I, I guess I think they've said they have. I didn't. But now it's so, it's much different after January 6th, after Putin, after the disgraceful things he's done to continue the big lie throughout this. And that's why I think the more we all from the outside, obviously it's I can say I'm saying more as a former member, but I still let people say, hey, I mean, I work in Washington. I work in government affairs. You know, hey, if you're doing this, are some people mad at you? Yes, but I have a lot of people people who didn't vote for the January 6th committee, people who even voted to decertify the election who say, way to go, good work. And so for those people, I feel like, well, I wish they'd do more, but that tells me they they are open to somebody else. And when that, now I think the person who's going to come along needs to be somebody kind of maybe away from all of this, a governor, somebody who, you know, has just been out there getting stuff done as Joe Walsh on the panels. I mean, that's what you have to do when you're in this. You know, in I don't think he said stuff, house. did he? <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I, think I think he, he might've said something else. Yeah. Do you think Glenn Youngkin considers running? I think, no, I think, you know, when you're an, a new governor, when you're a new elected, anything, you need to put points on the board. And I think that's how he's thinking and having worked with governor McDonald, when I went in, who was very effective, um, Unfortunately, had some problems later in his administration, not really of his own making. But uh, I think, you know, you go in as a governor and you're just you can actually get things done as a governor and putting points in the board. And then what you do doesn't meet the moment. And I think that's going to present itself, you know, the way it has to Zelensky. You know, no one would have picked him out. And so I think who will be the American Zelensky who at some moment is able to bore in on an issue and inspire the American people that there's another way to go and that they can fight this ugliness. And, and, and I, and I happen to still think center right issues have a very big majority, you know, like some of our Republican, you know, Larry Hogan, I mean, gosh, you know, my sister's in Maryland. She is pretty much left of center. She's voted for Larry Hogan twice now. He's a pretty conservative Republican. Yeah. I mean, people, because he speaks out against Trump, people don't appreciate that. But this is somebody who came up through the traditional 
conservative um, economics and social policy. He's pro-life. Um, you know, this is somebody who is a very good conservative. And just because he says Donald Trump is a, isn't a good leader doesn't mean he's not conservative. You know, like me, Donald Trump, you know, Hillary Hogan was fighting in the conservative trenches when Donald Trump was golfing with Bill Clinton and inviting Bill and Hillary to his wedding and writing checks to Chuck Schumer and supporting partial birth abortion and certainly supporting gun control and all these things that he's turned on a dime and I think would turn on a dime again. So Donald Trump isn't a conservative. They, oh, the judges. He didn't pick the judges. Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society mm -hmm. and Mitch McConnell picked the judges. So if you like the judges, thank them. If you like the tax cuts, thank Paul Ryan and Kevin Brady. If you like the, you know, low regulation policies, thank the Chamber of Commerce and the NFIB and Republicans who've been working in that for years. Donald, you can have all of those things without a jerk who embarrasses the country and is a more, just a morally horrible human being. And that doesn't mean the people who support him. That's what people say, well, I voted for him. You think I'm bad. I don't at all. And I... And that's what I try and say to my friends. Would it be that awful having somebody who could like win Virginia instead of lose it by 10 like Trump did? Wouldn't you rather have a consensus builder who brings people together for conservative causes? You know, that's pretty exciting when you can do that. I mean, that was my experience when I was in the Virginia General Assembly. Bob McDonald always was reaching out to um, you know, he had been a legislator himself and he was always reaching out to Democrats and independents when he could get them on board. He'd maybe, you know, bring the bill back a little in order to get more support, because if you can get a, you know, a single or a double or a triple instead of a home run, get the next hit the next time up. Right. And right. that's how real legislators and real leaders work. And Donald Trump was always, you know, just throwing the bat around and you know, walking away from a game and and hurting the country as a result. We've seen um, in recent weeks more elected Republicans show a willingness to speak out against Donald Trump. And we've had Mitch McConnell criticize him directly, pretty unsparingly, um, even though I think Mitch McConnell's position has been, for the most part, to try to avoid criticizing Trump. You've had John Thune, you've had more than a dozen Republicans criticize the president by name uh, of late. And, and as we discussed earlier, he seems to be really out on an island on his pro-Vladimir Putin position. I mean, even Tucker Carlson, who has basically shilled for, for Vladimir Putin in, in some respects for the better part of a couple of years, literally said, I'm on the side of, of Russia. Um, spent the last several days scrambling to get a, away from, from so his dishonest. pro <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly yeah. dishonest. But, but he's isolated on that. It's the dominant issue right now. I suspect it's going to be the dominant issue for a while. You've seen elected Republicans more willing to speak out against Donald Trump. Do you anticipate that this sort of murmur will rise to a crescendo or Will this be like we've seen so many times in the past where you've had people speak out um, and then sort of recede into the background? Well, I think it's, you know, I think you got to be a little bit of a student of history. It's always, you know, I mean, look, you know, when we're fighting the Civil War, you know, you thought you were making progress and you had people out there, you know, anti-slavery coalitions. Then you, you know, had the, uh, you know, and it retrenched, you know, and it went backwards. Then you had, you know, Lincoln. So it's always gone that way in history, you know, with, with, you know, Ronald Reagan, bring down the wall. I mean, that everyone, you know, forgets how long that took and how abused Ronald Reagan was that whole time. So, you know, I'm, you know, I guess inspired by, you know, leaders in history that were able to turn things around like that. But that's also why I think, you know, you work on particular um, races and cases, you know, when, um, Brian Kemp, you know, and again, I'm sure I disagree with him on some of the things he's done or whatever, but I think it's very important that he prevail against David Perdue. And when he does, that diminishes Trump. When uh, Governor McCrory in North Carolina prevails over Ted Budd, again, 
that that helps. The fact that Ken Paxton could what a uh, forty whatever he got with the Trump endorsement in Texas, you know, so people look and say, boy, okay, I'm voting for Governor Abbott, but then they went down the ballot and twenty percent or more fewer voted for the Trump endorsed guy. So the candidates matter. So the candidate running against them matters too. I wish George P. Bush hadn't been a Trump suck up too. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, he wasn't the endorsed one. I hope he just, you know, in this runoff doesn't try to be. Um, so, and then there are cases like that all across the country. We'll win some. We'll, you know, we'll we won't win them all, depending on the quality of the candidates. But I I tell people, you know, have the courage to go out and do it. Um, and uh, the more of us who do it, the more successful we'll be. Um, you know, Michael Wood, who ran down in that first special election in Texas, who was there with us this weekend, he, um, you know, he was the only anti-Trump candidate in the race. So obviously he didn't win. He didn't get a huge amount of votes. But what he did was he pulled votes away from other candidates and from the Trump endorsed candidate who then got thrown into a um, into a, a runoff and the non-Trump candidate won. So I said, I, I was telling him, you were part of that win. You never know how it's going to go, but he was part of that win against Trump. And now I think you have Trump, and, and particularly the Trump grifters are lousy campaign people. People underestimate that. When you talk about, oh, they're raising all this money. Sure, they raise a lot of money. It goes into their own pockets. It doesn't go into the races. I don't like the grifters. I don't like that that happens. But if they're running against you and they've got Corey Lewandowski, Corey Lewandowski is not spending that money on doing a good campaign or whoever the grifter is. You know, Brad Parscale blew all kinds of money, put a lot of money in his pocket. You know, you can he's like the oligarchs, but you know, in, in terms of relative to, uh, you know, campaign history, people making the kind of money that he made is unusual in presidential campaigns. Certainly George W. Bush didn't allow that kind of grift on his campaigns from what I could see uh, where I was on that. So those people aren't good at what they do, campaigns. They're good at grift. They're good at making themselves wealthy. Uh, but don't be afraid of them. And if you go out and talk to the people, talk about the issues that the people care about, and you can you know, raise enough money and be, you know, and you've been engaged in your community and done things, then you can beat these crackpots and fly-by-nights who come in. Because a lot of, like Liz Cheney's opponent, they're, oh, you know, Trump's supporting her. She's a lousy candidate. She's already lost. She does not know the detailed issues of Wyoming that are just embedded in the Cheney family and that they know and deliver for that state year after year. And a lot of quiet people, I think, you know, as well as independents who can vote in that, will come in and support that kind of person. But you have to be willing to stand. It's a lot more aggravating to do what Liz is doing, to do what, say, Tom Rice in South Carolina is doing, or, um, you know, these candidates who are willing to run as their own man. And that's what I did respect about Glenn Youngkin ran at his own man. Now, I think they also, behind the scenes, did some, somebody told me recently that Ronna McDaniel, so I'm, this is secondhand, but, you know, so take it for a grain of salt, but that she went down and told Trump, oh, stay out of Virginia. So they all kind of play and handle Trump, which I think is amusing, too, because they all want to keep him away in some way. They all <laughs> kind of, OK, I'll, I'll hire this Trump person, just be a Trump whisperer and keep him out of my race, keep him away from me. So they all play him like a child. And, uh, you know, with Virginia, you know, I'm told that the pitch was, hey, stay out of it, because if he loses, it's really close. If he loses, you'll get blamed like you were for Georgia and you don't want to have that. And so he that threatened to come at the last minute and then didn't. Yes. Come, did stay and, away. And nobody wanted him. Nobody. There wasn't, you know, none of the candidates were saying, bring him in here. And that's why when I advise candidates, I say, be your own person, run on your own still depresses me when some of them show up at his rallies because I was like, you don't need to do that. You know, or do you not have any confidence in what you've done for your constituents and your record that you feel the need to go to that? Those people aren't going to vote for some liberal Democrat who's going to raise their taxes and do bad things for them. Have confidence 
in our ideas and our principles. Put the principles first, which was what our conference was on. Barbara Comstock, thank you for joining us on the Dispatch Podcast. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for all you do and, and appreciate your leadership in, you know, leaving Fox News and having to make that break. And I think, you know, more and more people are standing up and doing that. And when you do that, as you probably have found out, you find out a lot of people who quietly agree with you who will come around and maybe be more vocal down the road. So, you know, we're, you know, we get to be the first ones out there doing it, but <laughs> which isn't always fun, but you know, somebody's got to do always. it. So yeah. Not, yeah. But it's, but you know, you can live with yourself too. So <laughs> it makes life easy. something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details